following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a way for the Israelites to begin their new year. And so with the uh, event of the Exodus, God said, I want you to begin your new year every year remembering that. So even though we don't remember our new year at the same time of the year, I thought it's, uh, it's cool that it worked out this way that we can talk about beginning our year well in the same way that, that they did. So we'll look this morning, we're going to be in chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. Um, And as we read, you know, uh, it's important to look for things that are repeated. And that kind of helps us understand what the passage is about. So as I read through this, there's a couple things that get repeated. I'll give you a clue. One of them has to do with God's hand. So be looking for that repetition as I read through this. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all the first, uh, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. For if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand 
or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, how many times does it say, by a strong hand the Lord brought you out? Can you count? Four. Four times. Repeated there quite often. Um, if you've been going with us through this last uh, couple of weeks, uh, three-week series, uh, you know that this is the, the event surrounding the Exodus, of course. Um, uh, and it's very interesting that before the Exodus, before the night of the Exodus, God gives them instructions about celebrating and commemorating this Passover meal. Uh, and it was even before the Exodus, God said, this is going to be your New Year celebration. You're going to start your New Year by celebrating the Passover. Uh, and, of course, it was for them an act of faith and by participation in the Passover, and by, by painting, sprinkling the blood, painting the blood on the doorposts of their house, it's how the death angel passed over their homes when, when God unleashed his judgment on the firstborn in the land. And so they were spared. So it, it, was, it was a memorial, but it was also an act of faith by which they participated in what God was doing to save them. So they did that on, the very, on that night, and they, they sacrificed the lamb, they ate the meal, they painted the blood on the door, and that very night, uh, God sent the death angel, the firstborn of all of Egypt, human and animal uh, died as God struck Egypt and uh, that Pharaoh finally relented and he kicked them out he didn't just uh, you know he didn't have to ask anymore he said please get out of here go away and he knew he had lost and that God was more powerful and at the end of that as they're packing their bags as they're assembling to leave again God gives instructions and reminds them about the Passover he says don't forget this day Celebrate it, commemorate it with the Passover, and he explains who can participate in generations to come. Right? So they start their march, and, and so chapter 13, they're they're marching out, they're out headed out towards the desert, but but Egypt is still in their rearview mirror. Of course, they really didn't have rearview mirrors, but you get the idea. They're still it's still in view. I mean, they're just leaving. They're just barely leaving Egypt as they're marching out on day one, and instructions come to them again a third time. Don't forget this day. And, and you're to commemorate it by, uh, by the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a seven-day seven day festival connected with Passover, and by consecrating your firstborn to me. All right, so when you look at these chapters together, it's hard to um, miss. Right? You just can't miss. Talk about repetition. Uh, the emphasis God's placing here on remembering this day. He says, it is to be an unforgettable day for you. And, you know, you think about this, and it's like, how could this not be an unforgettable day? I mean, imagine if you are an Israelite living at this time. You've been uh, held captive and in bondage in Egypt for 430 years. They, they have been cruelly oppressing you. Uh, you have been trampled. You have been abused. They are trying to kill your, your, your babies. You're fighting for survival. And God sends these 11 mighty acts. I mean, incredible things. The land's covered with frogs and flies and locusts and hail and darkness, right? How can you miss this, right? And then finally, uh, there's the Passover. There's the unleashing of the death angel. The firstborn die. And, and, I mean, how could you forget this, right? How could you forget this? Um, but the truth is, God knew that it would be very easy for, the, for them to forget 
And so over and over again he says, I'm reminding you, I'm telling you, you need reminders to remember. You need to remember to remember. And so that's what this is all about, over and over and over again. He, he, and he gives them these customs, these traditions, so that they will not forget this day. Uh, so that it will be for them an unforgettable day. But not because they couldn't forget it, but exactly because they could forget it. So the question is, why is this all so important? Why is it so vital to, to their very existence that they remember this, this day of Exodus? Well, that's what we're going to look at as we go through this passage. And it's, uh, of course, we're not Israelites, so maybe it doesn't matter to us. Uh, but I think the reasons why it was important for them to remember their salvation apply very much to us as believers. And, and it, speak to, it speaks to us about how easy it is for us to forget our salvation, and why it's vital that we uh, be intentional about remembering it. So how do we do that? Well, let's uh, look through the passage and see what it tells us about how can we remember well our salvation. Uh, first off, we want to just cover briefly what he tells them in this passage. He, he over and over again, uses the word remember, and, and what they're to remember is to remember, right? They're to remember these events. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, first of all, they were to remember where they came from. But they were not to forget, no matter how many years, or centuries, decades go by, that they were once slaves in Egypt. Um, the reason that's important is that knowing, what you're, knowing salvation, remembering salvation is really meaningless unless you remember what it is you're saved from. Uh, they were to remember that they were slaves. They were oppressed. They were people with no freedom. They worked in extreme, extreme work conditions. They were in bondage. Um, after this day, they would no longer be slaves. And so they got a new identity. And uh, you can kind of imagine how this works. You know, if you're, if you're a slave, there's a certain identity that goes with that. You don't wear fancy robes. You don't, you don't have fair skin because you're out in the sun all day. You don't have smooth, soft hands. Your hands are rough from the hard labor. And it shapes your very identity. Now they would have a new identity. Maybe still calluses and dark skin from working in the sun. But they would be free. A new kind of identity. Which is good. But they were not to forget where they came from. They had been slaves. And that was important to remember. Uh, likewise, as believers... Uh, praise God, we are saved. We have a new identity in Christ. But where did we come from? We, like the Israelites, were slaves in bondage to sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 probably says that in the most condensed, pointed fashion, uh, says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. We were followers of Satan. We were under his power and influence. That's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were all captive to the desires of our flesh, unable to break free from the demands of our flesh. That's where we were before God saved us. We were carrying out the desires of our body and mind. And the result of that is that we were, by nature, children of wrath. 
we, we should never lose track of where we came from. Right? I'm not a good person by birth. Right? I, I don't have like good person DNA and genes in me. What I have is sinful, fallen, broken genes. I was very much a children of wrath, deserving of God's worst judgment. Um, praise God, I'm not that anymore. By God's salvation. But to really understand his salvation, we should never forget where we came from or where we would be had God not saved us. Maybe you got saved at, you know, six months old, whatever, five years old. Uh, Maybe you you, you grew up in a Christian family and you were spared a lot of the grief of walking into deep sin because you were saved at a very young age. But even for you, it's important to know the trajectory you were on, the path you were on, that had God not saved you, would have resulted in a shipwrecked life. Because we remember it came from, secondly, we're supposed to remember how God saved us. And again, that phrase over and over again, uh, what you're to remember this day, which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. They were no longer slaves, but it was not because of what they had done. Right? We, are, we are saved not because of what we have accomplished, because we got ourselves, because we got our lives turned around, right? Because we were addicted and sinful and broken, but, you know, we, we went to counseling and we read a few good books and we, we fixed ourselves, right? No, that's not how it happened. It certainly was not how it happened for the Israelites. Uh, they were not, you know, they didn't rise up against Pharaoh they didn't demonstrate for their rights, right? They didn't finally organize themselves so that they could beat Pharaoh. But they were helpless and hopeless. They were saved by the strong hand of the Lord. It was by his power and his working that he saved them. As he poured out plague after plague after plague upon Egypt, and he showed he was supreme to all of their gods. They had no power. He, had, he alone had power. And God did it in such a way that he made Pharaoh so stubborn and so obstinate that in the end it was clear it was only by God's power uh, as, as Pharaoh resists this to the very end. Um, so much like our salvation, right? Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, human bodies, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He came and took on a human body as well. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to what? Lifelong slavery. We were subject to lifelong slavery. It is only by the power of Jesus and the power of the cross that we are anything, that we are saved that we are not what we were before. Surely such a salvation must be unforgettable, right? Um, and I don't know where you were saved from, but surely we couldn't possibly forget what we were before Jesus and the miraculous event when God came into our life and opened our eyes so that we could see the truth of his salvation and we, we trusted in him and, and we've been changed by that. How could we forget that? Well, it's amazing we can, right? We can, so easily. Uh, and a good illustration of this for us guys that are married, 
Have any of you guys ever forgotten your anniversary? Nobody's going to raise their hand, right? But I have. Um, dangerous thing. And it's like, how could you forget being married? I mean, you're married every day. You wake up with this person, poof, they're there every day. How could you forget? Right? How could you forget? But it's amazing how we can do that. Right? We can forget. Um, and, and the reason we forget is that it's so easy to take it for granted. Right? Which is exactly why when you forget, your wife gets so angry at you. It's like you're taking it for granted. You don't value how special this is. Remember, you're just a loser. You could still be just a single loser. Right? So you, you should remember where you came from. Right? But it's so easy to take it for granted. Um, yeah, sorry. Just the guys. Just the guys. Um, it's a gift we should never take for granted, right? But it is so easy to take those things for granted. So, so is true for salvation. It's so easy to start taking it for granted. To assume that this is my identity, and it is my identity, but assume that it's my identity by birth. I've always been a good person. I, I deserve this. right? This is who I am. But it, it's who, I, who we are only by God's grace. We take it for, for granted and we don't value our relationship with God and the price he paid to obtain our salvation. Right? The great price he paid. So, in this passage, God knows their propensity to forget and he says, you need to set reminders. You need reminders. You need, you need to set some alarms. And you know, we live in a day where we can do this with our phones and our computers and our devices and gadgets and watches and, and even, you know, for some of us older ones who use paper, there's post-it notes and sticky notes. And we, we, can, we set reminders for ourselves, which is a good thing because I would never remember anything if I didn't have those alarms going off all the time. Right? Beep, 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 beep. Remember this meeting. Well, they were to do the same thing. And, and, and God gave them these, these customs, these traditions of Passover, of uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and of the consecration of the firstborn as reminders, right, as alarm signals. Um, in the old days, uh, before phones, maybe, you know, as old people remember this, you would tie a string on your finger, right? Remember that? Uh, and people today have no idea what that means. Why would you tie a string on your finger? That's a crazy thing to do, right? Because it was a reminder. Or I remember writing things on the palm of my hand, right? Because I would see that, I go, oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, for the Israelites, <clears throat> they would write on their hand. Or they would, I love this, they would take their turbans, their hats, <clears throat> and they would attach a string with something that would go down right between their eyes, right? So it was right here, right? And that would be a reminder. That would remind you, right? It's right there. Every time you turn your head, it'd smack you in the face. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? That's what he says. He says in verse 6, Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Um, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. A lot of repetition here. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be what? A sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. 
So this is your alarm. This tradition, these, this feast is your alarm. I'm supposed to be remembering something. Right? Again in verse 14, so that's related to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In verse 14 he's talking about uh, giving up the firstborn. And notice what he says. Same thing, he says, When in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean, this giving up of your firstborn? You shall say, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be what? As a mark on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. See, these, these were given as their alarm, their reminders to not forget God's salvation. Um, so we need these alarms. It's, it's vital. And as you look through this passage, I think God gives three reasons why this is so important. And there are three re- reasons that are so relevant for us as Christians, uh, not only for Israel. So what are the three reasons he gives for doing this? First one, uh, it's by remembering that we, we, we build or grow the faith to overcome. Right? It, it grows our faith. Um, we are prone to forget all too soon. And it's interesting in verse 4, if you look back at verse 4, um, he says, Today in the month of Abib you are going out. Now if you're a sharp Bible scholar, the word month Abib should like raise all kinds of red flags. Because back uh, a chapter ago, in the beginning of chapter 12, he said, In this month you shall set this festival. And what was the name he gave there for the, the month? Anybody know? The month of Nisan, right? It was a Japanese month, apparently. Okay, the month of Nisan. Okay, now in chapter 13, he calls it the month of Abib. What happened, right? Was, was Moses confused here? Well, it's interesting, the, the, the Nisan, Nisan would have been the, the, more the Egyptian terminology for the month. Abib was the Canaanite term, right? So God's looking forward. He's pointing them forward. He says, it's cool, you've left Egypt. I've, I've affected this great salvation. This is not the end of it. And he goes on and he says, And when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, the land of the Hittites and Amorites and Hivites, right? um, he says, pretty soon you're going to be in a different place. You're going to call it a different month. doesn't matter what they call it. You're going to celebrate this day as your new year. And you're going to be in the land of the Ites, right? The Hivites, the, the Canaanites, the Flebites, the Jebusites, right? All those Ites. You're going to be there. And here's the deal. I've conquered Pharaoh. I have beat Egypt. I have set you free. But guess what happens when you get to Canaan? Right? It's not empty. It's full of people. And and here's the deal. They don't want to leave. (laughs) They think it's theirs. Right? And I'm giving it to you. But in order to take possession of it, you have to what? You have to go to war. You've got to destroy these people. Um. And it's not going to be easy. It's a whole new set of challenges and problems. Um, a whole new set of obstacles. Uh, and, and, and we know how this works. What happens is when we get faced with the problems of today, do we think about the past? I don't, right? I get so consumed with what's going on right here in my face today, and it can be, uh, it can be all-consuming, right? 
I can be just overwhelmed with the enemies and obstacles I'm facing today, and it's super easy to lose track of everything that's happened up to my life to this point. And God knew that was going to be a problem for them, that they were going to get to Canaan and they were going to be fighting battles and they were going to be pressed on every side and they were going to feel overwhelmed and they would forget their salvation. But it is exactly because they're going to face new challenges and problems that they had to remember. Because what was going to happen the first time they went out into the desert and they didn't have water um, and, and they were sure that they were going to die from, from dehydration, what were they going to do? Were they going to go, oh, I remember God took care of us in Egypt. I think he's going to take care of us now. Is that what they did? No. They grumbled and complained, God, why did you bring us out into the desert to die? We could have died just fine in Egypt, right? What are you doing? You've abandoned us. You brought us out here and we're going to die of thirst. Why are you not taking care of us? did they remember the mighty hand of God that delivered them? They forgot. They forgot. And God says, you you must remember because that will give you the faith to overcome in the obstacles and trials you are about to encounter. Remembering our salvation is the basis of our faith, and out of it our faith grows. Amazing passage, Romans 8, 31 and 32, for Christians. And it brings us all great hope. Um, Paul writes, What then shall we say to all these things he's been writing? He says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are you facing difficulties? Are you struggling? Are you facing trials? Are you overwhelmed by the enemies that are right in your face? And it's so easy to get so caught up in these problems that we forget what God has done for us. He said, look, God didn't even spare his own son. God went to such great extent, he gave his own son to die for you. If he did that, what do you have to worry about? Will he not with Jesus also graciously give you some things? It's actually not what he says. He does not say, I will graciously give you some things. He says, I will graciously give you all things. All things. Everything you need to survive and thrive and serve him. Everything. He says, I will provide and I will take care of. How do I know that? Because he gave me Jesus. Gave me Jesus. Why would he give his son and then hold back everything else? Right? By his great power and love, he saved us. We have nothing to worry about. Uh, just a few days before Christmas this year, a couple weeks ago, I get this email from one of our main supporting churches. And we'd just been there last summer in June and had a great visit there. The church really behind us, their missions committee was super excited and was doing cool things to support us and engage with what we're doing. And uh, they even let me preach, which hardly ever happens. Um, I don't know why. But uh, it was a good time, right? I felt like it's a major supporting church, one of our biggest supporters. I felt like, you know, we're, we're, we're in good shape with this church, right? We get this email a few days before Christmas that says, we're dropping all of your support effective immediately. Merry Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, 
and this comes, you know, in a year when we had had several supporters uh, reduce their support, and all combined, it was a chunk. I mean, it's a chunk of our support was gone, right? Um, so it's time to panic, right? Yes, it is time to panic. God, what are you doing to me, right? Um, you start thinking, you know, God's abandoned me, or maybe God's maybe it's time to go. Maybe I'm supposed to go back to you know, America and get a job at Walmart or something, you know. Um, at the very least, it's time to call down curses on the church in America. Um, or is it time to remember God's mighty salvation? Right? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously provide all things? After a few moments of panic with Denise and I, you know, um, it's okay. It's okay. God's going to take care of it. And I started thinking about it about God's salvation, both saving me, plus all the stuff He's done along the line. And I, I started thinking, you know, I didn't actually recruit any of these supporters. They all just kind of randomly came, right? I didn't make them or cause them to give. Um, God raised them up in the first place. Right? I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to panic. I don't have to start writing frantic you know, emails and support letters and take a trip back and I don't need to do that, right? Because God's going to take care of it. Okay, so that's the first thing. We need to remember because it builds faith. Second thing, we need to remember because it moves us to do good or to live rightly. Um, very interesting verse. In verse 8, verse, verses 8 and 9, there's a phrase in here that's really super easy to overlook, but I really believe it's, it's the center of this passage. Let me read it again for about the third time. Uh, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. Why? So that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, because it is with a strong hand that the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Very interesting phrase. As God's talking about remembering, he's talking about his mighty salvation. And in the midst of all this, he says, you need to do all this because um, it is so that the law of the Lord will not depart from your mouth, that it will be in your mouth. What does that mean? Well, for something to be in your mouth, it was an idiom or a picture of something that you talked about often, that you paid careful attention to. And the idea is here that they would be diligent about keeping the law. That's what that idiom means. That you need to remember these things so that you will be diligent to keep my commands. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that God had not actually given his commands yet. Uh, Now, he had instituted Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He'd given them some instructions. But he doesn't give the law until when? Well, until they get to Mount Sinai. Okay, they're headed there, but that hasn't happened yet. But God links his saving work, his mighty work in Egypt with what he's going to do at Sinai in giving them the covenant and the commands that go with it. And and he says there's a vital link between remembering my salvation and keeping my commands. Um, And it comes down really, it's it's partly about keeping the law, but it's more importantly, it's, it's about their motive for keeping the law. Why is it they were supposed to be keeping the law in their mouth and be paying attention to it and observing it. Um, If we obey, right, there there will be motives for our obedience. 
Uh, when I teach parenting, I do that a lot, uh, a lot of parenting classes, with both in English and in Thai. And when I teach it in Thai, I always ask parents, why, why should your children obey you? And it's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting answer. Because every time, this is what I get, every time, will they obey me because they're afraid of me? Or because they're just afraid in general? And when you look at their parenting techniques, that's how it works. You know, if you don't stop crying, a duke is going to come eat you. Right? That's kind of, that's Thai parenting. That's how they learn how to do it. And they have this belief, this conviction that obedience is a matter of fear. Uh, does that work? Well, it works for a while until the kid figures out that the duke is actually not going to eat me, right? Uh, and, and, or, or the farang are not going to eat me or steal me, right? Or some of the other things they tell them. Uh, fear is a motivator. God does not want them to be motivated by fear. That is not to be the reason they keep the law. It, it is a reason, but it's not, it's not his ideal purpose. Right? He has something much different in mind. Um, and this was important because of the way human nature works. Um, in, in, in Egypt, in the religions of their day, all of their sacrifices and all of their efforts, religious efforts, all of their actions, were intended to um, gain favor of the gods. Right? So when you offered a sacrifice, you did it not because you loved the god, but because you were trying to appease them. You're trying to satisfy them. You're trying to do something to, so they would leave you alone. Or sometimes so that you could manipulate them into giving you what you want. That was the purpose of sacrifice. And what's interesting in this passage, um, God starts out by saying, I want you to give your firstborns and consecrate them to me as a sacrifice. But then he stops and for uh, several verses, from verses 3 through 9, he, he reviews one more time this whole thing about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then at the end, he goes back and he explains again uh, the need to um, offer their, their firstborn. Right? What is he doing there? Well, he's, he's, he's making sure that they understand that this sacrifice of the firstborn is not to earn favor with God. But they're not doing this to appease God or to get him to do something for them. Instead, their motive should be one of, of covenant love. That they understand that God saved them out of his compassion and his grace. That he cares for them. That he spared their firstborn in Egypt when he took the firstborn of, of the Egyptians. And they should think, wow, God cares for us. He loves us. We were so grateful. We, we so love what he has done. We joyfully set aside our firstborn. Their motive was to be loving devotion to God, not guilt or manipulation. Um, they were to remember God's gracious act so that their sacrifice was not an act of self-righteous works or manipulation, but it was thanksgiving. So, so what this means is that God is making his salvation the first principle or, or the foundation that their whole faith would be built on, the whole rest of their religion would be built on. So the way to put this is, is, is that by remembering salvation, it puts the rest of their religion in the right order. And it's very easy to get things out of order. 
We see this most dramatically illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story well. I don't have to read it. We know the story. Um, but why did, why did Jesus give this parable? And what's the main point? Well, oftentimes, because we're so struck by God's forgiveness of the prodigal, and when the prodigal comes back, we think that's the main point. It's talking about God's compassion for sinners like us. But that's actually not the main point of the story. The main point is actually the elder brother. And if you look at the very beginning of uh, Luke chapter 15, it gives the backdrop to this parable. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. So Jesus is attracting all these lowlifes, right? The lowest scum of society in, in the eyes of the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, it says, Jesus told them this parable. He's speaking this parable to the elders, to the, to the Pharisees, to the scribes. Um, and, and, and what's the part of the older brother? Well, the older brother, is he a good son or a bad son? He's a good son. He's a very obedient son. In fact, he says in verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you, talking to his father. I have never disobeyed your command. I have been a good son. I have done everything you ask. But we know that he is angry about his little brother. And then in the parable, the truth comes out. The reason he's been obedient. He says, I have served you. I have never disobeyed you. Yet you never even gave me a single goat. You haven't given me anything. I have wasted my obedience because you did not give me anything. Why was he being obedient? Well, to manipulate his father. He was doing it to obligate his father to give him what he wanted. And by the way, Jesus, uh, this is not a compliment. Jesus does not tell this parable to praise the Pharisees. In fact, at the end of the parable, they're left standing outside. The, The elder son is left standing outside in the darkness as the father's pleading him to come into the house. As Jesus is pleading the Pharisees, don't, don't put yourself outside the kingdom. Right? You, you are about to lose eternal life. I am pleading with you to come in. See, they got, they got their motives backwards. They thought obedience was a means to, to earn and merit God's kindness and favor and blessing. Have you ever been there? Boy, have I been there. It's so easy as Christians to do this, to try to live a good life, be a good Christian, say the right things, read your Bible, go to church, give, be a missionary, serve God, with this idea that if I do all this, God owes me. Right? He has to give me his blessing. And you see, it's a, it's a huge insult to God when we do that, because he says, look, all I have is already yours. Out of my great love for you, I've given you my son. I've given you everything. When you work to get more, it's insulting because you scorn what I've already given you. It's by his grace that he's poured all this out on us. Um, He pictures this also in the consecration of the firstborn. So he wants to make it clear that that uh, the sacrifice is not something we do to earn God's favor. It is to be done out of grace and, and out of mem- uh, remembering his salvation. 
What they were to do is they were to, to consecrate the firstborn. The word there is literally the word to, to holy. It's, it's not a verb in English, but if it were a verb, it would be to holify. Okay? It's, it's to make it holy. And in this context, that means to set it apart for God's use alone. It doesn't mean to make it sinless, because a lamb is not sinless or sinful. It's, it's amoral. The idea is that by setting it apart, you are dedicating it exclusively for God's use. So they could get no benefit from it. They couldn't eat it. They could not uh, shear it for wool. They, could get no, they couldn't sell it. Right? It's, it was devoted to God. And how do you make sure that God alone gets the use of it? Well, sadly, in this case, you kill it. Um, you, you sacrifice it. It's devoted completely to God. Its life is forfeit to God And the idea is that, that that's, it was right because God had redeemed them at the cost of a firstborn son. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you, you, I, were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. But we are to, like, like the Israelites, we, we are to set, us our, set aside to consecrate our life because Jesus redeemed us. We, then the principle is we owe him our life. So Romans 12:1 puts it this way, I appeal to you, I beg you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What kind of sacrifice is this? When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, what kind of sacrifice is it? It is not for atonement. We don't do this as a Passover lamb. There's nothing about giving our life to Jesus that's atoning. It is not a guilt offering. We don't do this like, you know, we go out and commit a really bad sin and we, we fail and we feel really bad. So we say, okay, God, I feel so bad. I'm going to give you my life because I feel guilty. It's not that kind of thing. It is not a guilt offering. Right? It is an offering of consecration because he's already paid for our guilt. He says, by the mercies of God, the word there really it can be translated by the compassion of God. Because God has been so compassionate in saving you already, out of love and adoration and thanksgiving, you are to present, you are to sacrifice your body as, as a living sacrifice on the altar, meaning that we devote our life to his exclusive use and purpose. Right? We live for his benefit alone. And it is our spiritual worship. The word worship there it can also be translated service. Interestingly, it's the same word that's translated in uh, Exodus 3, uh, Exodus 13 we've been looking at. When it says, Today in the month of Abib you're going out, and when the Lord brings you to the land of Canaan's, Canaan, you shall keep this service in that month. Same word. It is your duty of worship. It is what you do to serve and, and worship and obey God because you love him. So that's the second reason, reason we, should, we should remember because it puts our religion in order. Right? We were saved by grace. We were saved by faith, not by works. But we still are to obey. We are saved to do good works. And what motivates us to do those good works, to serve, to obey, to live a godly life, is our gratefulness for our salvation. Lastly, we have two minutes to do this last point, so I'll do it really fast. We are to pass the baton well. 
They're supposed to do this in a way that impacted the next generation. And they did that by these really bizarre traditions. It says you're not supposed to have leaven in your house, no leavened bread. Um, the, the Israelites lived on bread, leavening bread. It was their main staple. So good parallel. It'd be like telling Thai people, for one whole week you can't eat rice. You have to substitute it with mashed potatoes. Right? Now if you're a Thai kid and there's no sticky rice, this is a crisis moment. Right? Potatoes are not sticky rice. Ah! Right? That's kind of what the effect it had. It's like, where's my bread? You keep eating this stupid cracker thing. I want bread. Right? Second one, you're to sacrifice every firstborn. They were farmers. Okay? The way you... The way you're a good farmer is you, you breed and produce sheep and cattle, and you want it to multiply. You, you grow crops. You want it to multiply, and that's your livelihood. Okay? Taking the very first thing that comes, whether it's first of the crop, first of the animals, first of your children, and you sacrifice it, it's counterproductive to good farming. The kid's going to go, Dad, why are you doing this? This is costing us too much. Just think how much richer we would be if you would keep killing all these animals. Right? This is crazy. But it was supposed to have that effect so that they could tell their sons, this is why I do it. Uh, it's, it, it's, it is strange, but it's strange with a purpose. And through this, I can communicate to my children the message that, um, and in verse 80 says, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. What's interesting about that is that makes sense for the first generation who came out of Egypt. But 300 years later, they were supposed to say the same thing. It is because what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of Egypt. You see, it was vital that they all enter into the story and participate in it firsthand. Because God didn't just save the Israelites in the time of Egypt. That salvation carried through the history of the Israelites. Right? It was personal for them, and their sons had to themselves enter into the story, and the only way they could do that is if they understood the story. So they were to remember out loud. Right? It's not enough for us to just contemplate and remember internally and in our own heart and mind what God has done for us. We need to remember out loud. Uh, and we need to do that in ways that are strange and odd. What I mean by that is there should be things in our life and our practice and our behavior that stand out as unusual. Our kids should look at this and they should say, Dad, you're weird. Right? Some of us, that comes easier than others. Right? But our lifestyle should be so different from the world around us that they said, that when our kids say, Dad, why can't we go to that? Why can't we do what all the other kids are doing? And you say to them, because the mighty hand of the Lord saved me and I have a different life. That's what it means to remember out loud. This should be something that is outstanding about our life and our behavior and we should do things that are weird uh, in in comparison to the world around us. Lastly, uh, a parenting tip. This is true if if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you have neighbor kids you work with, if you have ministries that work with children. We need to remember, if we put these points two and three together, point number two, we need the right order of faith, that it's God's grace first, then it's obedience. Point number three, we need to be passing on the baton to the next generation. You put those two points together, it tells us something about how we raise our children. 
What is the goal of parenting? Well, for a lot of us as parents, because we have to live with these little burgers, the goal is obedient children. (laughs) We want our children to be nice. And we want them to do what we tell them. We want them to clean their room and do the dishes. Amen? Anybody all about that? All about that. And, And we should. Certainly we should be disciplining our children, teaching them obedience. But that is not the goal. If your goal is just to raise obedient children, you will end up with elder sons, right? Who think that because they are a good person, God owes them something. And it's the worst thing you can do to your child. It's the worst thing you can do to your child. The goal is not... It's not for them to be conformed. It's for them to be transformed. Which means we tell our kids, the reason, he says, you're not obeying, and the reason you're not obeying is because you're a wretched little sinner. Right? You were born this way. And there is only one way that you are going to overcome sin in your life. It is through the transforming work of the cross. You need salvation, not just to get your life together. That's the goal of parenting. And the great thing is kids give us lots of ammunition because they are little sinners, right? This is not hard. There's plenty of opportunities to explain to them your behavior is out of control because you can't control your behavior. You are in bondage to sin. And the only way you're going to overcome it is through faith in in God's mighty hand to sin. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.